looking then at uh, faith and failure, I put as a title uh, from Romans chapter 14. I was reading just now um, a program I watched on TV years and years ago where some academic was interviewing different people about their faith or lack of faith. And there was a, a rabbi on and he said something like faith was um, uh, confidence in the face of uncertainty. Uh, and then uh, there's a dictionary definition for something like faith is believing something that might not be true. Well, the Bible in Hebrews 11 starts off with faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So I wonder at the very outset, what do you think faith? What would you have said faith is? You may want to think about that later. Now, when I was a young Christian, uh, I bumped into a load of fellas because I went off to train uh, for uh, to be a preacher, basically. And uh, I was told by some of these guys, oh, you, you should not listen to you two. You should not listen now to uh, Genesis or the Beatles. You should listen to Mozart. Well, the should, you know, the should. And then uh, you should, you know, there were other Christians. You should not watch TV. You should not drink alcohol. You should not go to the cinema. You should not bet on a horse. You should not gamble on the lottery. You should, well, lots of shoulds. I remember <clears throat> just asking a question in a house group we did in the previous church, just to get people to think, because there was very much nobody had been, there hadn't been a history of thinking, sadly, in that fellowship. So with our little group, we had about 10 or 12. Uh, imagine you come to my house on Sunday afternoon, you find the TV on, uh, Chelsea playing Manchester United. You find me sitting down having a cup of tea. What's your first thought? Now, since I have no interest in football, I was expecting somebody to say, well, I'd be very surprised. Oh, why have we got that on? Who's watching that then? But the, the immediate reaction was from the wife of an elder, who I, when I said, uh, what would be your reaction if you came into my house and saw Chelsea playing Manchester United on the TV on a Sunday afternoon? She said, I'd say, you hypocrite. Well, immediately that suggests then that there's a should somewhere, somewhere along the line. I should not have had Manchester United and Chelsea on the TV. Now, bear in mind, uh, Paul says the Corinthians, I've just started reading First Corinthians in my quiet time, do not go, make sure now you do not go what's written. In other words, don't make up your own rules. I remember... Uh, saying from the pulpit once that uh, I had tried as a new Christian to carry on playing rugby, even though I was old. Uh, I loved it and I wanted to carry on, but I couldn't. It just was no good for me to make any spiritual progress. And uh, a lady came up to give me a terrible dressing down afterwards. How dare you say, tell me that my son is not allowed to play sport? Well, I hadn't said should at all. I hadn't said your son should or shouldn't. But that's how she took it. Now, should is a big word, isn't it? Because uh, it immediately suggests failure to reach a certain level, doesn't it? You should have done that and you haven't, kind of thing. I remember uh, a young Christian, oh, it was weeks before I plucked up the courage to go to the prayer meeting, and then it, I went, and uh, there, was an, uh, there were very few there, and there was an old guy well, I say an old guy, he's probably 60. Uh, and, uh, you know, he prayed for, must have been 20 minutes. You know, and out of him were just pouring uh, biblical verses, 
and uh, quotes from hymns. And uh, I just I just sat there thinking, well, there's no way I can, you know, if that's what you've got to do, I can't do that. There's no way I can compete with that. Uh, not compete, perhaps. There's no way I can follow that. I'm not in the same class. And then, oh, a few months later, I blurted out a one-line prayer, something like, thank you, Lord, for saving me, or something like that. And uh, as soon as the prayer meeting finished, he slapped me on the back, the same guy, and said, hey, that's all right. Don't worry, brother. God uses the little prayers as well. Well, again, that sounded like a, you should have prayed longer. You should have prayed something better, different, whatever. So in Romans 14, it is quite a bit about disputable matters. Disputable matters. Bill eats all sorts of food, but Ben doesn't eat pork. Jenny, her favourite film is Schindler's List, but Penny doesn't believe that a Christian should watch TV or movies or read magazines or, or whatever at all. So who's, who's strong in faith and who's weak? Is when me and the older guy, as we sat there and he prayed for 20 minutes, uh, I mean, who had the weak faith? Were we both weak? Was one of us stronger in faith than the other? I remember an older Christian lady I met when I was a very young Christian, and she was telling me about a, a young lady who was also a young Christian. And this older lady, this older Christian lady said to me, you know her? I said, yeah, yeah. She's miles ahead of me. Well, well spiritually she meant, well, well, was, was she? And if so, uh, who, who could judge? How do we judge? Who was the mature Christian, if you like? It's a dangerous phrase, I think, mature Christian, isn't it? No, we need, you know, we need to be clear on the importance of faith. There's a lot about faith in this passage, particularly right, right that closing uh, verse at, right at the end that I'm going to come to in a minute, God willing. The importance of faith. In the early 16th century, you've got the young monk Martin, deeply devout in the Roman system uh, of seven sacraments. A sacrament was a way, a means of becoming holy and acceptable to God. Now, nothing has changed in the Roman system. There are still, as far as I'm aware, seven sacraments. sacraments, And they, they're more or less this. It depends which, uh, which where you read them, which words they actually use. There is basically baptism, uh, confirmation, reconciliation or penance, you know, uh, um, the Eucharist, bread and wine, mass, whatever, uh, holy orders, that's becoming a monk or nun or whatever, marriage, and the, the anointing of the sick or the last rites. So those are the, the seven. Now Luther had tried five and had no peace. But of course, the two, only two left were marriage, but he couldn't do it because he'd gone to holy order. So that was out. There was only the last rites left. There was only the anointing of somebody on their deathbed left. And of course, this drove Luther to despair. See, for Rome, salvation was via the church, via justification at baptism. And then if you fail because you sin, then the second plank of justification was penance. Now, 
Luther and the reformers came to see faith. Now, Roman church insisted faith is essential. You had to have faith at baptism, right? You couldn't be justified otherwise. But of course, where the reformers differed was they said faith was enough. Not just uh, essential, but sufficient, totally sufficient. If you had faith in Jesus Christ, that was enough. You didn't need anything else. In other words, when we sang out to him at the start, Jesus, Jesus, all sufficient in Welsh. Yes, he, yes, he, writing vegan. Jesus, you are enough. And that's what the reformers taught, because that's what the Bible teaches. Faith alone. Why? Because Jesus alone is enough. You didn't need anything else. It wasn't Jesus plus anything else. So faith in Jesus Christ guaranteed you were right with God. You're on your way to glory. And no matter how often you sin, because you are right with God, you will confess your sin, you'll repent, and you will be in heaven. Or to use another uh, illustration, the Roman church went back to Aristotle, going back now 300 years before Jesus was born, uh, who talked about the sculpture, the sculptor making the sculpture, and what instruments did he use, the instrumental cause, the hammer and chisel or whatever. And of course, the Roman church said the instrumental cause was baptism. Whereas the reformer said the instrumental cause was faith in Christ. That was a massive difference. So what? So history lesson there for five minutes. What's the point? Well, when we look to quibble about disputable matters, as they are in uh, Romans 14, and they're still around today, um, you know, they were talking about the food, different foods and whatever it is, or drink, drinking or whatever. Uh, but as Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. And how does one get righteousness? How is one justified? Faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Remember Luther's agony when some people asked him, do you love God? No, don't forget, now he was the most uh, passionate, devout Augustinian monk in the whole monastery. Do you love God? Luther would honestly say, Sometimes I hate him. Hate him. And when he came across the phrase, every now and again, the righteousness of God, he said, I detested the righteousness of God. Why? Because it flattened him. It condemned him. He had no chance. He knew he had no way, no matter what he did, even if he lay on the stone floor and had people beating him with rods and he confessed his sin six or seven hours a day, he knew he could not reach that level. Wonderfully, eventually he came to see he didn't. There was no way he could, and there was no way God was calling him to. That it was the righteousness from God revealed. God was giving his own righteousness to Luther. How? Down the tube of faith, by faith. A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, from start to finish. Now, are you with me so far? you with me so far? And, of course, when Luther saw that, the windows and doors were flung open spiritually, he could see. Now, there's Bill and Ben and uh, Jenny and uh, uh, Penny earlier. They have strong views on what it means to be a Christian. This is what a Christian has to do. This is how a Christian lives. But the point that Paul makes is, okay, and they may have sincere and genuine views 
that are diametrically opposed from each other. But both will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Both will. And one or more could be wrong. Sincere and wrong, but wrong. But we see the importance as well of the conscience in this passage, because we are not to violate our conscience, because the, the conscience is God's ally. It's meant to be, for, we are meant, once we're converted, to get that conscience to line up with what God says. And so, therefore, when our conscience is bothered about something, Paul makes this point just in the last few verses that I read there, then if our conscience is bothering something, bothering us about something, we must not violate our conscience, even though our conscience could be wrong. But if we sincerely believe this is what God is saying, we must not violate our conscience. For instance, if I sincerely believe that a woman is not allowed to preach, and I find myself in the church, and a woman comes to the pulpit to preach, if I sincerely believe that, which is as it happens, I don't, but if I sincerely believe that, I must not violate my conscience. Now, but if I believe this is wrong, I must not just sit there now and pretend everything's all right, because I'm violating my conscience. I'm doing damage now to my conscience. Do you follow that? And whatever is not of faith, because my conscience is this, this is what I believe. And whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. Whatever doesn't come from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is labeled sin. Might not be labeled sin by you or me, but it's labeled sin by God. And there's a lot to think about here. You know, uh, I suppose this is, uh, this is not a typical message that I would want to preach from my heart, you know, typically. There's an lot, awful lot of, of grey areas here you might want to think about after. You might, there might be nothing to discuss, but you might have a lot to, to think about later. You know, it's not, not, not so much about eating and drinking, or maybe it is, but so much. Again, you, and you might want to think, is this passage just talking about that particular issue of eating and drinking? Or is it talking about everything as disputable? Or is it talking only about believers? Does it include everybody, believers and unbelievers? There's an awful lot to think about. I heard a guy say this once. For a good deed to be a good deed. Okay? For a good deed to be a really, a genuine good deed. Then it must come from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it cannot be a good deed. Now, when he said that, I, I remember my first reaction was, well, hang on now, hang on now. But I have thought about it. And, you know, think about it now. For a deed to be a good deed, according to God now, for God to label something a good deed, what he was saying was, unless it, the deed you do, however good and beneficial it might be to mankind, or to a particular branch of mankind, particular person or people, unless it comes from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not good. You know, you need to think about these things. I mean, what's your knee-jerk reaction to that? Take this example now, okay? And we're in the realms of fantasy straight away, okay? As you'll soon, if you know me, you'll realise. I buy my wife a very expensive present for her birthday. Immediately now, you know, that's never going to happen. She wouldn't want it anyway. Uh, but imagine now I buy her a very expensive present 
and she's thrilled with the gift. And I am delighted that she's thrilled. And it all looks hunky-dory from, from a distance. And it all points, as you look on, it all points to me being a wonderful human being and the best husband in the world. One of those fellas that uh, when I drive somewhere, like I was driving up to Lampeter, Steve Wright's show comes on and there's a request for the, the best man in the world, the most wonderful father and the most wonderful husband in the world. Now, there, there we are. So you look on and you say, oh, isn't he wonderful? But unknown to you and unknown to my wife, I had motives for buying this expensive gift. And my motives were, I want her to think I'm the most wonderful husband and man in the world. Does that change the good deal? You need to think about these things. Does it change anything? My motives. Or the pandemic strikes. Sally, the scientist, works night and day, right? She even sleeps in, in, the, in the research lab. She's got a sleeping bag there and she sleeps on a, a hard uh, chair there somewhere. And uh, she's working every waking hour, working on this on a possible cure. And hey, presto, after three months, she has the perfect remedy and millions of lives will now be saved. Has Sally done a good thing? Well, of course she has. Will millions benefit? Of course they will. Does God say that's a good deed? I think according to Romans 14, you'd have to say, the Lord says it's not a good deed because it doesn't come from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but she's come up with a miracle cure. Great. Tremendous, tremendous benefit to men and women and boys and girls. Isn't, isn't Almighty God grateful to Sally? And he say, thanks, Sal. Thank you for coming up with that. That's great. Well done. Whatever is not of faith is sin. She might have worked phenomenally hard. Great. We may feel Sally deserves all the accolades and awards that come her way. But what does God say? What does God say? See, Almighty God doesn't judge as we judge. Just as well, isn't it, really? You know, you think of um, Partygate, the Boris thing now. If the inquiry comes up with, here's the result, uh, it, nothing illegal took place. Does that matter? You know? But we all know something, something that's not right has happened. Everybody knows that. It doesn't matter whether it's the law is, in one, one sense, whether the law has been broken or not. We all know this was not a good move, don't we? We all know it was insensitive. We all know it was unfair. We all know that this was very, very biased towards those in authority and against ordinary plebs like us. And then on top of all that, even if they conclude nothing illegal has happened, I'm not keen on my country being run by a bunch of drunken people, are you? See, when it comes to Almighty God, he, he sees it, everything that I do and think and say from every possible angle, doesn't he? He sees me. You know, 1 Corinthians, 
Paul makes the point the Holy Spirit searches not just my action, not just my words, but a big word, my motives. And when you read that clan, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, searches my motives. First Corinthians 4, my conscience can be clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Doesn't make me innocent. I could be wrong, seriously wrong. I could be wrong and not even know myself that I'm being wrong. You know, in Romans 14, if I violate my conscience, I am sinning. But that, you know, we come back to 1 Corinthians 4 again. I can be totally, I can put my head on my pillow with a clear conscience and be wrong and be guilty. Obviously, if I put my head on my pillow and my conscience is really turning me up, up, uh, upside down, I've got big things to do with God and I've got big business with God. So 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whatever I do, yeah, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or you preach or you read or you go to work or you get on the bus or you cook the food or you dig, dig the garden, or you uh, give, give money to charity, whatever you do, do it all what? For God's glory. Anything less is sin. So that, what does that mean? It means sin is much more serious than you think it is, and much more serious than I think it is. It's serious enough that only the slaughter of the Son of God is enough. You know, John Owen said, he marveled, awestruck, that there was more righteousness in Jesus than sin in him. I thank God for that. But it's amazing. And only faith in Jesus is enough. Why? Because faith is simply the connection between me and Jesus. You know, you have a, a break and I unplug the TV in, in, in the night when I go to bed. Now, there is no connection now. There's no connection. There's no way the TV can work now. It's not connected to the power source. And faith is simply the connector. It has no clout, no merit before God, because it simply connects me to the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Oh, this, is, this is thrilling. It means that when I mess up, and I do, if I have faith in Jesus Christ, maybe wobbly, maybe weak, I'm still safe because Jesus is enough. How come? How can that be? There's an old hymn. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful, almost, not quite, almost too wonderful. God made him who had no sin, the great exchange, God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. You know, sometimes I, I watch Dragon's Den, and uh, somebody comes on, they've got these pits, they're going to do something, and uh, one of the dragons says something like, the trouble is here now, I'm going to give you 100,000 for so, much, so many percent of your business, but, uh, you know, a couple of months' time, you're going to need 100,000. You're going to need millions. I'm going to be pouring a lot of money in you, and I'm not going to get my money back for years and years and years. And therefore, I'm out. Because 
They don't want to go into debt for these people. And yet, here's Jesus on the cross saying to me, all, all that's mine is yours, not righteousness. And he says to me, and all that's yours, and all that's mine is what? Sin, guilt, filth. What did Luther say? That he was a, a, a filthy mag maggot? All that's mine, all that stench, that filth. Is his, is Jesus. That's why he's on the cross. That's why he's pitch dark. That's why he shouts out, it is finished. When it's over, when he's done it, when he's paid the price. All that he is, that he is, is now mine. So why is faith so important? Because Jesus is enough. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you tonight? Amen.